Welcome to Beyond This Point. I'm Gabriel Stromberg, Creative Director of Civilization. So, what is the point of Beyond This Point? The inspiration for this podcast really came about through our studio, being so inspired by those around us who we work, collaborate, and engage with. Artists, business owners, designers, and leaders of all types. We recognize the value in having access to these distinct perspectives and wanted to create a conversation that puts a spotlight on different ways of seeing, thinking, and making. On this episode of Beyond This Point, I was lucky enough to sit down with graphic designers Lance Wyman and Sean Wolcott. That night, we were joined by a group of enthusiastic design students and professors from all over Washington. We all packed into Seattle's Peter Miller Books for a conversation centered on visual identity and graphic design history. My first guest, Sean Wolcott, is a designer of systems and user interfaces who just happened to have studied under Massimo Vignelli. He's also much too modest about this point. If I had studied under Massimo, every conversation I had would start with this. It would seriously be on my email signature. He is also a creative director at Microsoft, runs his own practice, Rationale, and is one of our studio's very favorite collaborators. My second guest was the incredible Lance Wyman. Legendary is not a word I use lightly, but through his amazing body of work, Lance has truly achieved legendary status. He is a pioneer in the field of wayfinding and environmental graphics. He also made his mark in the field of branding and identity, most notably the Mexico 68 Olympics, the Washington Metro, the Minnesota Zoo, and so many others. He has influenced my own work and the work of countless other graphic designers over the years. Unit Editions recently released a monograph of Lance's work. The book is absolutely amazing and features Lance's body of work in its entirety and includes an in-depth interview as well. And now, let's go beyond this point. So I never thought I would start off one of these with a quote from Confucius, but here goes. <laughs> There's a Confucius quote that says, we live not in a world of rules and laws, but of signs and symbols. This concept has never been more relevant than right now in the midst of our digitally focused, globally connected culture. One need only look at their phones or computer screens to see that symbols and icons are a huge part of our visual world. They're how we navigate not only the physical, but also the digital landscape. So you were one of the pioneers, Lance, in, I will quote you, the challenge of communicating layered messages through minimal form. Could you talk a little bit about this, how you started, and how your perspective, namely concerning icons, wayfinding, symbology, how has that changed and evolved in the midst of the digital age? I know that's a mouthful. Yeah, well, <laughs> I studied um, industrial design. They didn't teach graphic design at the undergraduate level when I was um, a student. And the only place they taught it were at graduate levels, like graduate uh, courses at Yale, for example. And I met a designer from Yale, and I saw, um, it was, I, I met a student from Yale who was studying with Paul Rand, and I saw for the first time, you know, how geometry could be expressive. And it really, really was something that, uh, I guess I always uh, had an inkling to do, but I had no idea that there was a field of design that I could, you know, practice that in. So that, that's how I got started. And I think my, my challenge was always to, um, I mean, I grew up, I, I know a lot of the guys in the Mad Men, Mad Men, um, you know, period in New York. So, and that was a hot period in New York because there was a lot of conceptual thinking. You had George Lois, you had people like him doing things that were really mindful. I mean, they just weren't uh, images. They were images that had a lot of impact to them. So I grew up with that, but I wasn't in advertising. I didn't have much interest in that. But 
I always uh, thought that, you know, the challenge of taking simple geometry and being expressive uh, of a layer of things, that's, that's the area where um, I can really define when I think something really works. I mean, as a designer, I feel always um, committed to communicate something. I mean, I'm a visual designer, graphic designer, so usually, unlike an artist, uh, there's a job to be done, I'm communicating something. And I kind of migrated towards the simple geometry. I, I seem to um, enjoy making simple geometry communicate. I guess that's as simple as I can put it. And it's if you're a writer and you like to do poetry, it's about, you know, haiku, poetry. You get into the simple expression uh, as far as using a kind of a minimal amount of material, in that case, words maybe, and in my case, forms, and uh, being very expressive. And it's, uh, it's a real challenge, and I really accept that challenge, and I guess that's uh, where I really got my first start, you know. I mean, I had a question in Mexico just last week when I was down there, and uh, it was, how did Mexico influence your design? What does Mexico mean, mean in my design? And I said, and it just came off the top of my head, I, th I think the soul of my design is Mexican. And I, I mean that because they had cultures, some of those early cultures that really learned how to communicate with very simple form. I mean, they, they communicated uh, vegetable, animal, uh, mythology, they communicated uh, very beautiful systems of geometry, and they knew what they were doing, and they really knew what they were doing, and you can see how it evolved through different cultures. And when I saw that, I never saw that before, and um, it really got me interested in not only uh, was I working in a country where I could help express the culture, in that case for the Olympics, but I could learn from um, just having the incentive of realizing that uh, a lot could be communicated with simple form. So I think that's really my background. So my soul really does have a little big piece of Mexico in it. So. You know, it's interesting. Um, I also think of um, ancient Greek and Roman iconography. I think of Egyptian symbology. Uh, I mean, in that way, is wayfinding and signs and symbols. I mean, is this an ancient tradition? Oh, my God. I think we, I mean, language is the, uh, the least ancient, ancient uh, tradition, probably. I mean, I, I think we probably communicate a lot more than any words we have with body language, with just being together. And, uh, you know, language kind of came in. And, I mean, it's, it's more of a hindrance in a lot of ways. I mean, for example, I mentioned this last night. We had to work with three languages for the Olympics. And when you try to do complicated uh, messaging with three languages, on signs and things like that. I mean, it's a real hop in the ass to try to do that. I mean, it, it is hard. So we really try to um, eliminate language completely. And I think we did a pretty good job. And that really has um, been very stimulating for me. I mean, I kind of shoot for that all the time. So I guess we're not really talking about you know, icons or symbols. We're talking about strategies. We're talking about systems. We're talking about ways of making these. I, I think of them as being my partner when I design something. You know, usually it's a basic element in a program, and if I can design it with the idea of making it work, uh, that's where I, I think I, I was really lucky putting branding and wayfinding together. Uh, so my, my basic elements were designed with the idea of making them work as my partner, and that's been very helpful. And I really have followed that pretty much through my whole career in one way or another.
So Sean, you also have a, a less is more, a very functional approach to design. And uh, as, uh, as creative director of Microsoft, uh, you work primarily in the digital realm. Do you want to talk a little bit about that, about the contrast of the idea of icons and symbols and wayfinding within, within that world, within that digital yeah, world? Yeah, I mean, for me personally, uh, I mean, as, as Adrian said, I, I'm much of this philosophy of all, all history is contemporary. And, uh, and I think for a lot of us with the internet, like we, we experience the past as something that's new. And, uh, and, and the things that have really like turned me into a designer, I were like, there, there were old things that made me want to make new things. So there, there's that, that, part, that thing that kind of, this really mo motivates me. There's a, just a, a sense of curiosity in making design. I mean, I see certain things like uh, the Japanese mon, like the family crests and the, just the composition and the power, it's just immutable, you know, it's it just, it's, you can't, you know, you can't help but to notice it. And, uh, and I think, and Lance talked about this a little bit last night, we live in a world that's inundated with iconography, but it's, there's, there's a lack of understanding of, of why you should use it. And even and work I'll do at Microsoft, you know, it's like, oh, can we have an icon on every text item, you know, where it's like, well, you know, the purpose of an icon is to surpass language. Uh, but one of the things I'll find that I'll run into in day-to-day -day practice in, in the digital space is that you, you, have, you have to have a word typically for accessibility and a variety, variety of other reasons uh, with the iconography. So it's one of those things where I think, you know, the, the icon is, I mean, it's still relevant. There's still plenty of appropriate places to just push for no words. And I definitely am that guy who's saying that. And, uh, but on the other hand, like you, it's, it's like a second cue your eye has where, and, and it's interesting, whereas if, if you're doing, uh, you know, doing something, be it a website or, or a book, it doesn't matter. And I, an icon really almost becomes the primary cue that it seems like your brain gravitates towards. Like we, we go to pictures before to words, like when we're given a list that has, you know, maybe category areas as pictures and then words, like our brain and sister are just in tune to, uh, hone in on pictograms. Well, I mean, I think there's a, an obvious context for the use of iconography. I mean, they work really well telling you where the bathroom is or where the stairs are. Uh, but is there a limit to what icons can express and represent? What about things that are very complex? Is there a place where maybe they're not appropriate? Uh, it's, it's interesting where, I mean, particularly in the digital space, you'll, you might be like, I want to, you know, there might be like three metaphors you're trying to cram in this one space because I'm trying to say that you know, you're, you're copying and pasting and doing this additional action. It just, the, the more metaphors you add, the harder it becomes. Like one or two items are like, seem to be like the limit of what makes an icon clear. And you know, as Lance showed in his work, the, uh, the arm, but then once you have the water, then you get the uh, additional context. But I think it's a fight just as designers, just to uh, maintain purity to either like limit the use of language or to limit the use of iconography mm -hmm. uh, to have to maintain a clear design um, and, and to limit the use of uh, metaphors within that. And an another thing I would add is just the, um, the, the quality of iconography suffers in our world. Just the, you know, the average logo is designed uh, overly complex for an exclusive existence on the screen and things that I'm, I, I admire in the best signs and symbols is that they can be a, a tiny badge here or they can be as big as this wall and the scale feels completely appropriate in both contexts and uh, you know that's something that's clear in the best uh, the best signs and symbols I think be it uh, for wayfinding or a corporation. Yeah well when you think about it um, 
probably one of our most used icon, if you will, is the directional arrow. I mean, you don't need any words with that. But uh, as far as the limitations are concerned, does any of you know how to design a straight-ahead arrow in a multi-leveled uh, uh, environment? I mean, I have never come up with a way of doing it, and uh, it's, a, it's a really interesting problem. We can go this way, this way, this way, you know, and when you're on the highway, straight ahead can be, you know, pointing up. But when you're in a building, pointing up doesn't necessarily mean it. Can I, can I tell a story? Absolutely. Okay. Please. <laughs> I, I did the signing for Amtrak station in New York. We, we, we were at the point where we made full-size uh, mock-ups in paper uh, that we brought down to the station, and there was one, one sign that said straight ahead to 7th Avenue. Uh, it was in the rotunda area of the station, if you're familiar with the station. And I had it, you know, up there, and um, the guy from the signing company had it up there, and we were looking at it, and uh, a cop, New York cop, this is not my language, this is New York cop's language. He comes over and he says, Who's the fucking idiot who's doing that, you know? <laughs> so I, I went over to him and I said, um, uh, Officer, you don't like the sign? I said, I have to you know, admit I'm the idiot. I said, what, uh, what don't you like about it? And uh, he said, well, he said before, the sign was pointing um, up. You know, the arrow was pointing up, meaning straight ahead. And when he said that, I thought, wow, that's, you know, that, there goes your straight ahead arrow again. He says, and you know what happened? People went up to the goddamn taxis and they come down and give me a hard time. He says, now you have the arrow pointing down. They're going to go down to the subway and they're going to come up and give me another hard, hard time. So I said, well, I said, what would you do, officer? And he said, just write straight ahead on it. So that's what I did. So when anyone asked me about that, I say there's a very friendly officer in New York. If, 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 you, can't, if you can't read English uh, or Roman letters, uh, ask this guy. You can. <laughs> but there you go. I mean, that's a straight ahead arrow story. And uh, it was very real. I mean, you know, it affected a cop and he got all upset about it. And, you know, you have to deal with those things as a designer. Well, that brings us to a really great topic. I feel like one of, one of the hallmarks of your body of work is that in all of the solutions that you create, uh, in the research that you do to, to come to those solutions, you really, you really figure out how to connect with the culture or the audience that you're designing to. What is your process for that? Well, I think that was one of the big lessons I learned in, um, in Mexico, is that you know the Olympics in Mexico were very clearly the Olympics. It was before they became really commercial, so we didn't have to deal with you know, commercial signs on everything, so that was a big help. Uh, the other thing is that it was the first time the games came to Latin America, and working with Hermides Vasquez, whenever, whenever he did a, he did a lot of um, Mexican pavilions around the world, and whenever he did a pavilion, it was contemporary, but you always knew it was Mexican. It, it was that kind of wisdom that he had that really oversaw the whole program for the Olympics. And I mean, I went to Mexico and absolutely fell in love with those early cultures. So I kind of fit right into being the guy to do the graphics with him because that, that was the philosophy that we were dealing with. And I think now that we've become a lot more homogenous and I do a lot of work with cities and I'm working right with Mexico City actually right now. And I do have a, a kind of a, a legendary part of the visual part of that city with the Metro and with the Olympics. And what I'm trying to do is to take the language of those two very recognizable programs, one that's been going on for almost 50 years, 
The other one, uh, they, they still use the three-line typography. Uh, their, their national baseball team uses it. They use it all over the place. It's recognized you know, outside of Mexico. So I'm trying to synthesize those two visual type, typographic solutions and bring them up to date. So far, so good. You know, there, there does seem to be a synthesis there where I can come in and then, of course, do a lot of uh, three-dimensional applications and things like that. Uh, I guess the point is, is that cities want to look like who they are. I've always liked Seattle for that. You've done some kind of wonderful things along the way. I love your manhole covers that have the, the maps. I was aware of that way the hell back in the, I don't know, maybe even the 60s. You know, it's very important. And I think as designers, if you think in those terms, I think there's work to be had, you know, and you can talk about, can I tell you another story? <laughs> Yes, please. Please do. That's why we're all here, Lance. My Harlem story. Can I tell my Harlem story? Okay. We came back from Mexico in 1971 to New York, and we, we actually bought a, a townhouse in an area that was all boarded up. I mean, a lot of the buildings were shut down. We saw it in the winter, bought it, and came, we, we came back in the spring, and summer was happening, and God, the street really came alive. We had prostitutes, we had drugs, and we had everything you didn't want on the street was there. It's on West 80th Street between Columbus and Amsterdam Avenue. My wife got very involved in organizing a block, a block association, and one thing led to another. Now, now our block is one of the best places in the city. But in the process of doing this, she dragged me around to different uh, community groups. And uh, she dragged me up to a group in Harlem, and it was about was in the, in the basement of a church, it was a big conference area, and there were about 35, 40 women, they were all women, and they were all in their, say, 50s, and that, you know, average out about that age. So you could see when anything got done in those communities, it was the women that, you know, got it done. So I started talking about graphic design. The idea was, let me tell you what the concept was, to go into a community and talk about uh, the fact that Every community has talented people, whether they be professionals, whether they're art students, whatever. Find them, put them to work, do t-shirts, do logos, do banners for your block association. So when you have events and everything, you have identity. Okay. So I started talking about graphic design. And as close as you are, closer, a woman stands up and she says, what the fuck are you talking about, man? You know, and it was, it was one of those... I mean, it was right in my face, you know, and I thought, I looked at her, I knew she was right. I mean, I knew she was right that, here I'm talking about graphic design, like I'm talking to, like you guys, graphic design students or whatever. And so I asked her if she had a, uh, if her block association had a t-shirt. And she still, no. And I said, I said, why? And, she, and I had her, she didn't know why. So all right, so I asked her for permission to start again. I started again, and this was like a, a very, and this is a good lesson for all of us, it was an epiphany moment because I went through the whole, all of my nine yards of graphic design and how great it is, but I didn't talk about the graphic design. I talked about what it could do for her, what it could do with everyone in those communities. Uh, I talked about banners, I talked about t-shirts, I talked about you know, logos. I mean, I really tried to explain how they could get people that were talented to do these things. And it was, at the end, I got a applause. She was applauding. I went, <laughs> it was great. I mean, it was one of those experiences that I have to say was um, kind of a wonderful epiphany in my life because it made me realize that uh, 
you really do have to talk to your audience in language that they can understand. And I think that's something you don't necessarily learn in design school because we all talk to each other all the time. You know? uh, Sean, kind of designing in a, uh, in a context that's more commerce-based, do you think that there's a different approach to take or is the process the same? I mean, the, it's interesting. The one thing, I, I mean, I do big things and I've, I've been able to do some things at Microsoft that like goes into the billions of people that it affects. But on the other hand, I'll do something that maybe is for my sister-in-law and the, the 10 people that are coming to her dinner party. <laughs> Just, I'm that guy she calls and then I, I, can't, I can't say no. But I mean, it's, it's actually really interesting. The one thing I find is like how like these small projects and big projects really feed into each other. And uh, it, it's the same thing I find. It's like the, the, the skills I use for a small project, like, and, and they feed back into each other where I can kind of t take these risks on small projects and then learn some things and then apply that to like big, massive, crazy, crazy things. Um, but really it's the same thing, but I will say with a big project, it's more, it's like the same thing longer and the same thing with, you know, more communication skills required and, uh, you know, g getting people on board and to understand your motivations of doing your design, maybe less or so than, uh, you know, a friend of a friend who loves your design work and wants you to do something for them. But, uh, I mean, I would really, and, and I think just any design, any design I do, it's, it def definitely is kind of more intuition based and, and comes from this kind of, there's definitely a, a need that, like a problem I'm trying to solve and a, a, a need for a person that it's trying to fulfill. But uh, it's selfish almost in another sense of just, uh, I love doing it. I'm kind of going into this space and kind of following my intuition to sort of uncover problems as I go. And, uh, and it's really al almost exactly the same, be it, uh, ginormous or microscopic, I would say, in terms of just mentality and approach. So it is the same then, or, or similar. It's that uh, you almost are- Almost the same, yeah. You, are, yeah. you are figuring out how to talk in a language that your audience will understand. Yeah, and, and I mean, and, and I love doing all sorts of design. I love like challenging myself in digital things. I love, you know, like, hey, I've never done a book cover. And, you know, some novelist friend asked me to do one and then like, oh, you're a book cover guy, okay. You know, so then like, you know, you do eight more and you, and you learn and, uh, you know, you do a design book and you, uh, you analyze the things that, you know, and you kind of p pick up on things you, you think work and, uh, or then maybe you do a novel and then you learn from the novel. But then when you're doing maybe a, an iPad app, you're, you're taking things you learned from the novel and applying it there and I think it's important to escape this feedback loop where, you know, app designers just look at apps and, you know, it's just, it's, there's like this, uh, there's this healthy, you know, healthy flow, I think, of different ideas that, you know, I, I'm fascinated by wayfinding systems. What can I learn for that when I'm doing something in a two-dimensional world of traveling yeah. through space? It's the same spirit. Um, there's different knowledge you need to kind of build up for different areas, but... I welcome that, and that's what gets me excited. Lance, going back to your story uh, about the woman in the, um, in the meeting, do you think uh, one of the reasons that your first attempt at communicating maybe didn't go so well is because you were speaking in a language that she didn't understand, she felt alienated, excluded, and then you kind of figured it out and, and rethought and then redid your, your, uh, your presentation in a way that really connected with her? So both of you do, uh, again, you have an approach. It's very minimal, modernist, sophisticated, but yet it's all about communication and functionality. So how do you strike that balance of elevated design and usability and accessibility? 
does this stem from also this balance? Does this stem from a, a personal worldview or philosophy? I think my bottom line is that um, as a designer, we are mandated to communicate. I mean, that's, you know, that's what we're all about. And uh, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. And it cannot work uh, on many different levels. And I didn't really think about this so much when I was in design school, because I have to tell you, I was not a good student in high school. I did not get into Pratt uh, the first year I tried. And I had to go to a junior college uh, for a year and keep a B plus average, which I did. And I finally got into Pratt. But at that time, we had an English teacher who was also the basketball coach. And it was at that time when the, when the vets were coming back from Korea. And these guys had the GI Bill, and they really wanted an education. And he taught English in uh, a way where he started the first class by saying, we're not going to have books in this class. And all these guys went, no books. I mean, they, they were going crazy. And he said, no, 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 no. He's a basketball coach, so he handled that. And he said, what I'm going to have you guys do, he said, all English is is a way of communicating. And this was like a magical thing to hear, really. And he said, what we're going to do is go out and analyze when it fails. And we, we went out every week and you know, got into whether it was you, whether it was who you're talking to, whether it was the language itself, why did communication fail? And I think for me, when I got into designing, I carried that lesson with me. And I, I, I use that with all of my design. You know, so I don't, I don't really um, fall in love with anything uh, until it's done its job and it's out there communicating. I think that was an important lesson for me. So that's a real bottom Bottom line, I mean, you get a, I've mentioned you have a lot of layers in, in, in what you design, but uh, that's the one that is really important, that you are a communicator, and you know, the more effectively uh, you communicate, I guess the better designer you are. Sean, how do you, how do you keep that balance? How do you... Uh, uh, well, I mean, I guess first, I'm, I'm curious when, just for, for Lance, when, when something... Just the, you, you feel is communicating, but maybe the recipient, uh, meaning the client, uh, is not an understanding that it's communicating. How, how have you dealt with those those types of situations in your professional experience? Like wanting to kill someone for not. <laughs> oh, I mean, we had the example of the, the woman on the, the block. Uh, well, you know, I, I, I look at just about all of my career as a, a, a partnership with clients. I remember I was on the, uh, the board of uh, SEGD, and one of the things that uh, I heard quite frequently was that they were educating their clients. And I'm, I'm thinking, what the hell kind of clients do you have? You have to educate them, because you, usually if you have a good client, the education is built in and you're problem solving together. And you do what you do well, and they usually know the problems better than you, know, you do until you really get involved in the project. So. Um, I haven't had that problem too often, to tell you the truth, and uh, I think that's part of, uh, you know, I, we were talking about this before, I, I've, I've never had any fear about designing something, I just don't have fear about that. And I wouldn't call it fear, but I have uh, concern about getting involved with the politics that you have to get involved with, getting involved with, um, you know, people that just are not going to be someone you can work with, I mean, there's always that kind of... Uh, it's a concern, it's not a fear, and I think you have to learn how to navigate that. And that comes with experience. Fortunately, I've, not had, I've had really beautiful experiences with clients, and I try not to expose myself uh, 
to a yes or no situation without going through a process. I think that's probably the key because when you go through a process, you really design together. You're not surprising someone with a presentation. You know, you're really, you're really solving a problem usually and you're doing it together and it's a collaboration. And that's the best kind of experience I've had. And I, I've had a lot of that, so. And I think in, and when it is a good client, they're, they're coming to you because you're Lance Wyman, not because you're the guy that has a drafting table or knows Illustrator. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Never thought of that. I, I have a drafting table. <laughs> <laughs> that's not why you got the job. That's my point. <laughs> well, no, I think after the, um, you know, after I started getting a profile uh, after the, the work in, in Mexico. But I'll tell you something. Before I went to Mexico, I had very, very good experience. I mean, I had solid experience. I worked with George Nelson. I did international work. I got out of this country. I saw other cultures. I wasn't naive when I went down to Mexico. And thank God I had enough talent to, to deal with what the, you know, the projects were down there. But I mean, it all, it's all additive. It's all a process. Your, your whole life's a process. You, you just kind of keep going through this stuff. And I guess when you sign up for special forces, you've got to deal with it. You know I mean? It's like that kind of a thing. If you're going to be a designer, just be aware that you're going to be dealing with a lot of stuff. And, uh, Get good at dealing with it. I mean, it's work. It's not, uh, mm -hmm. you know, it doesn't just happen. Yeah, I once had an experience of meeting a famous madman, mad, mad man, <laughs> I guess, uh, George Lois. And uh, one of the things he said, uh, you know, when, when it wasn't laden with many curse words, uh, was uh, he said that design was 1% uh, inspiration. He said it was 9% perspiration. And then 90% justification. Yeah. 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 And, uh, yeah. and I mean, that, and that, that could be a, a bad thing, but that 90% with the right you know, partnership goes really fast. That, there you go. I mean, you're yeah. all uh, looking to be... But, but you generally need it, right? Yeah. Because they might not have the same intuition, but, but in the best case, any project is, it's about partnership, as Lance said, mm -hmm. and it's about some mutual respect, you know, that, that we, uh, we're, we're on a team, we're... You know, we're, we're not trying to pass a bill as law. Uh, we're 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 going for you know we're we're playing the World Cup and yeah. uh, going for the goal. <laughs> I, I did I did the um, the the symbol for the uh, airport in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. Now this was back in 1978, and it was before anyone really kind of was aware of Islam. At least I wasn't. And I went over and witnessed all the people coming in for the Hajj. I had no idea how big Islam was and how diverse it was and all of that. And I had a girl in the office, she was uh, Iraqi, and I worked with Kufi calligraphy. You know, you have the Nessa and the Kufi, there are two different types of calligraphy. The Kufi is more architectural, it's an architectural type of font or typography. And I developed a thing that, if you look at it this way, it says Jeddah, and if you take the same thing, and I, I never tried this, yeah, if you do this, it's an airplane, and it said Jeddah, but it was Jeddah upside down. Okay, we're working on it for a year, and the guy in charge comes to New York, and he says, you know, I mean, we were applying it to everything and so forth. And he said, I'm not so sure people understand they can read this. And his name was Colonel Amin. I said, Colonel Amin, we've been working on this for a year. He said, no, no, so He said, I want you to, he gave me very specific instructions. He wanted a five foot by five foot square. It was in Saudi green and had the logo. We, we painted it, it was a painting. I rolled it up, I brought it over, go into their offices, they were right downtown, and you have, they, they have these little guys with machine guns, you know, all those very military in that sense. He sent two of those guys down into the street, they came back with three guys, 
And you know, they all came in, and what Colonel Amin did, he put, the, he put the painting on a sofa, covered it with a white sheet, and just waited. And then these guys come in, the two guys with the machine guns, and the three guys, and they're standing there. And he says something in Arabic, pulls the sheet off, and the three of them go jetta jetta. They read it right side up, upside down. So he said, yeah, here it is, yeah. I mean, here you can see the Kufi calligraphy. And that says Jeddah, but also this says Jeddah, but it's upside down. And they just looked at it and said, Jeddah, Jeddah. And he goes, okay. And, you know, they, were, they started walking out. Well, one guy was savvy enough to come back and ask what the hell just happened. Because they thought they were arrested. These guys were military. They, they had no idea what was going on. And, you know, they passed the test. And, was, and that, was, that was the focus group. You know? <laughs> so you never know, uh, you know, what you have to deal with. <laughs> And they were holding the machine guns when they... Uh, <laughs> yeah, they so, had machine guns. Right. Yeah, yeah, I don't think you want your user testing sub, uh, subjects no, I never, I never. <laughs> yeah. uh, When reading through the monograph, I, I came across a term, visual poetry. Yeah. Uh, you were, you, I think you were talking about how logos could be visual poetry. When talking about your process and a lot of the discussion that we've had here tonight, we talk a lot about functionality and usability, but ultimately... Um, there is this uh, element of, of delight and beauty and aesthetic poetry mm -hmm. that definitely comes through in your work. And I'm thinking specifically of uh, the wayfinding for the Calgary. Is it the plus? The plus 15. Plus 15, yes. Yeah. The, there's a little figure and he's wearing a cowboy hat. And there's just something that makes <laughs> you smile every time you look at it. Um, and it's those little details that I think really connect with people. When you're designing, yeah, obviously you're trying to solve a problem. But this element is, is extremely important, is it yeah. not? Sometimes they happen uh, without me planning them because, well, first of all, the plus 15 is made of dots. And uh, up in that area and doing research, the uh, Blackfoot people, the natives up there, they paint dots on their teepees. And I found out that the, uh, the circle in their mythology represents a star. Now for a bridge system, they call it plus 15 because it was 15 feet above the, uh, above the street. So I did a plus 15 in dots the star constellation, and had a little figure walking on it. It was a walkway. It was just a little figure walking on it. And the mayor looked at it and he says, oh no, he says, you gotta, ha you gotta, ha you gotta incorporate the white Stetson. That's the, you know, the, the symbol of the city in that uh, logo. And you know, your heart sinks like, oh Christ. You know, then, then it hit me. I put a white Stetson on the little figure and it was, <laughs> so I didn't make that up. I mean, that was like, that was like a forced. Uh... <laughs> so, the, I mean, it's, I just love the process of design because you you know you never know what's going to be around the bend. It's just uh, it is a process, and you just have to you do have to deal with it. But I've been lucky most of the time, except with the uh, tuck up in Toronto that wasn't very good. <laughs> <laughs> do you want to tell that story? I told that last night because Adrian asked me if I ever had a failure, and I was part of a team developing a program for the Toronto underground city, and I came up with this idea of a little chipmunk. I had a, a, a map, it was like just the city map, and then boop, this little chipmunk came up and showed all the entrances to the, uh, and everybody loved it. And then I told him what, what the little chipmunk was, his name was Tuck, C-U-T-U-C, and uh, he was gonna be the little guy that represented the underground. Well, everyone started laughing because a product that's like preparation H, it's called Tuck. And, then, <laughs> and that was the end of that, I mean, you know, Everyone just started laughing, and you, you can't explain your way out of that. I mean, you just, 
done a stupid thing. <laughs> so I lost that one. Yeah. Though both of you came of age as designers at very different points in history, uh, you both share similar design philosophies, which we've talked about before. Form follows function. Uh, you both champion usability and create designs that are thoughtful, graphic, and timeless. How is it different, not just being a designer, but being this type of designer? Say, uh, contrasting it in the 60s and in, in today. I don't really think there's any difference. I think, uh, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, here we are, we're all together and we communicate with each other and it either works or it doesn't. And I, again, I go right back to the basic premise of what I always try to accomplish with my work. Now, when you say, you know, it communicates or it doesn't, you know, I, I use the analogy of telling a joke. I mean, you can tell it and really be great at it, or you can tell it and not be so great, or you can be telling it and no one understands it. Well, you can't really explain a joke, you know, and you can't make a joke good if you miss the boat. You know, and I think it's the same way with, um, well, I mean, I know it's the same way with the type of work that I do. It either uh, has a response that's uh, a workable, positive response. Sometimes it's uh, funny. Sometimes it's uh, meant to be extremely serious, but not to, you know, hit you over the head with being too serious. And, and you know, there's a lot of different tones and there's a lot of different uh, ways that you can communicate. And I, I just find it so interesting to just explore all of those ways. And you don't have to go so far. You just show it to somebody. And, you know, if you're honest about really evaluating the response, you know whether you've communicated or not. And you can't explain it away or, you know, it either communicates or not. So, so do you think it's safe to say that um, these basic design principles that you both kind of adhere to um, will always be relevant, will always work, will always result in, in good design? Yeah, as long as we communicate with each other. I mean, like clarity and uh, you know, striving for purity. I think that's always welcome to people. You know, the, the world will always be a, a busy, noisy place. And uh, I mean, I, li I like that noise. Uh, but on the other hand, I like when things are clear and strive to make something beautiful. We're also kind of in a, a design moment that appreciates this approach. Um, and I'm thinking uh, coming out of the 90s where things kind of changed and people were kind of off the grid, so to speak. And you had people like David Carson doing kind of grunge design. Um, do you think that we'll have another moment like that or? Yeah, we have one right now with Donald Trump. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, things are being shaken up, aren't they? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the, the pendulum is always swinging, and uh, yeah. obviously, you know, people, some sort of hyper-minimalism is embraced as a style where everybody's doing a, a, an X with some symbols or shapes around it. Um, but, I mean, for me personally, what's important is it's not, I mean, it's not about style, it's about language, and how can I uh, embrace something that, that I believe in personally. Uh, but, but, I mean, what I, what I believe in can, can be serving to a client as well. Yeah, I mean, as I said before, just uh, things that are stripped down and thoughtful are always relevant. I mean, things that are stripped down and just a you know flash in the pan and uh, following the the trend, which may be less or more. I mean, it keeps going back and forth. Yeah, I mean, the, those those are the things that that will last. And uh, I want I want to make things that look good despite the uh, current trend. So I, th I guess it's safe to say that we won't be seeing a, a new Trump Tower logo from Lance Wyman. <laughs> uh, which, which leads to a really great question. Um, is there a project that you wouldn't do, and for what reason? 
that I wouldn't do. God's, I don't know, I've been pretty uh, fortunate in that area. I mean, there are probably projects that I wouldn't do, but I, I, I think people probably know that before they ask me to do them, so. Uh, no, I don't, I don't have any, uh, again, that's attitude, isn't it? You know, I don't have, I don't have that kind of an attitude about anything. Uh, I evaluate things as they come, and I'll say no if I, you know, feel that's the right response. But, uh, you know, I don't say I'm not, never going to do this or that, you know, because sometimes you're surprised by things you have attitude about, and I don't, I don't want to, I don't want those kinds of surprises. I, th I think, I mean, there's, there's obviously the eth ethical side of things. Like, if you are, uh, if, if you know this client is, you know, unethical in some way, like, cl clearly not, but in terms of, uh, is it a dinner party invitation or a prestigious design award poster? Uh, I mean, I think b both can be can be fun and can be delightful. I want to hear a story. Uh, well, yeah. Well, I mean, I've heard uh, from <laughs> from Massimo Vignelli. I heard a few good Paul Rand stories, and and anyone else that I've met that, that encountered Paul Rand at some time had uh, some good stories to tell. Um, and I can tell you two ones really fast that Massimo Vignelli told me that are unpublished out in the world. So we're gonna use this remaining time to trash Paul Rand, I hope you guys are there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, Paul Rand was fantastic, but I guess he uh, was uh, known as a uh, curmudgeon on the outside and teddy bear on the inside. But uh, when I, one of the times when I first, first met Massimo Vignelli, someone, uh, a friend I was with asked him like what he thought of Paul Rand and he said, uh, Paul Rand was fantastic. He never did a bad thing, but he was a bitch. <laughs> and so he, he, he admired him, and, and he went on to explain if, the, if that was, you know, this, cult, this generational gap of this, this coldness or whatever he had encountered, but he, he deeply admired him. And, and the other story was uh, uh, Paul Rand came into a Vignelli Associates dinner party or some, some sort of event at their... 10th Avenue office, which looked like this, uh, you know, it was palatial. And he said, uh, he said, why do you need all this space? I did my best work in a broom closet. <laughs> <laughs> I, have, I have a messy most story if you want to. Oh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, I was, I, I loved Massimo. I mean, I really miss him. And, uh, but anyway, uh, I did get kudos in Society for Environmental Graphic Design, and I was made a fellow quite early in that organization's uh, existence. And Massimo had done uh, quite a bit in the environmental graphic design area, and he, we made him a fellow, and they asked me, we had our conference in New York that uh, year, and they asked me to give Massimo his award. So I went over to his uh, studio, and at that time we were still using um, Kodak carousel trays with 35 millimeter slides. So I wanted to get some material from Massimo about his work. And I'm looking at all these slides with Massimo, and I'm going, Jesus, I said, you know, we all know this work, Massimo. And I said something that was kind of magical. I said, what about little Massimo? You know, and he grew up in Milan. You know, I, I saw his face light up, and he went and he got this album. It was, a, you know, kind of this moth-beaten leather album. And he opened it up, and it was like pictures of his mother holding, look at a Fellini movie picture, you know, his mother holding this little baby Massimo. And <laughs> it goes all the way through his kind of early life. I mean, he was like Italian on the beach. It looked like he had a tennis ball in his uh, bathing suit. I mean, he was just a classic guy growing up. <laughs> so, okay. 
You know, I've done this before, and maybe you show one baby picture or two. I had about eight pictures of Massimo in this thing, along with his work. <laughs> and I mean, it was it was fun to run through it. And uh, <laughs> you know, after it, uh, his wife Lila comes over and she says, "Where did you get those pictures?" She never saw that album. He, I know I don't know whether he had it just hidden away or forgot about it uh, or what, but it was it was one of my favorite uh, moments with Massimo. That's my Massimo story. Speaking of designer stories, one of my favorite parts of the book is uh, your interaction with Otto Eicher. Oh, God, yeah. Well, Peter and I, I mean, Peter was like 27, I was 29, and we won the competition to do the um, Olympic program. We had a little office, and we ran out of wall space. We had stuff stuck on the ceiling. I mean, it was just, but we had got to the point where the logotype was established, and we were starting to apply it. And Iker came through. He walked in, you know, he was introduced, and he didn't even say hello practically, and he looked around. He said, we're further ahead than you, and walked out. And I'm standing there with Peter. I mean, we're, I mean it was frightening. Like, what just happened, you know? <laughs> How did you know it was him? <laughs> well, yeah, no, we knew it was him, because he was, he was, uh, he was he, you know, he had, we had 18 months at that point before the game started in Mexico City. He had four years in 18 months, because they were four years after Mexico. So I never really liked him for that. I, you know. <laughs> and I, I've met a lot of people that didn't really like him either, so I don't know. That's the way Otto was. I mean, he was probably better than that, but uh, that was my experience. So, Guys, thanks so much for coming out here today for uh, Beyond This Point. Thanks, everybody. Thanks again. Yeah, thank you. Beyond This Point is created by Civilization, a design firm rooted in social change. The podcast is audio engineered by Dave West and produced by Eric Blood. Listen to more of our podcasts at beyondthispoint.design.